Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 23 in our series for 2018. And today's date is Friday, July the 20th. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. First, I talked to Doron Pellick, the CEO of startup RiskWise Property Research. Generally, 90% of startups fail. Pellick tells us how they can mitigate this failure rate. And then I talked to AMP Capital Chief Economist Dr Shane Oliver, looking at why the market is performing so well in the wake of a looming trade war and other risks. But first, let's talk to Doron Pellick. Doron Pellick, you're with RiskWise Property Management. And uh, tell us about the issues facing startups, what do they need to deal with? Okay, so usually startups face with the uncertainty. Usually they have a problem with the strategy, with changes to the strategy. It's hard for them to get an experienced team to deal with changes. And even when they do, uh, what happens is that when they uh, interact with clients, particularly corporate and institutional clients, some, sometimes they don't have the credibility and the experience to communicate with them and to get these corporate clients on board. So does that mean the first thing they need is a good team? Absolutely a good. And the definition of good is very experienced team. What kind of experience are we talking about here? If you ask me, the best experience is corporate 
experience. If you come from a very large corporation, institution, particularly if you have held a senior role, that could be really, really a benefit for you because uh, you work with senior management executives. You truly understand uh, strategic priorities, uh, objective priorities. It's easier for you to deal with changes, to deal with uncertainties, uh, a lot of uh, resilience because you have dealt with so many changes, so many problems in the past. Uh, you know that people come and people go and uh, you might lose clients. There could be and there will be issues all over the place, but we've seen that before. So it is by far easier for you to deal with that, to manage with those situations based on your experience. So a strong and experienced team, you would need people who actually have worked in the corporate sector. Yeah, absolutely. Like, think about it like any other job. What is to run a startup? Is you run a company, an office, by yourself, which means um, you have the keys to drive the Ferrari, right? Now, in the corporate world, usually... Uh, that position is equivalent either to a head of or a GM. And if you think about corporations, when they hire a GM or a person at the head of position, they are not looking for a person who has just graduated the, uh, the university with a lot of uh, energy and uh, some creative ideas. They are looking for a person who has done a very similar role, maybe slightly less uh, senior instead of uh, a GM, you were just a head off, but this is the spirit that you have the, the experience, the proven experience. I would imagine you'd also need uh, resilience and ability to deal with changes. Absolutely, and this is what you see particularly since uh, the GFC in corporate Australia and actually corporations all over the place, uh, cost-cutting, restructuring, uh, a lot of uh, outsourcing, co-sourcing, uh, changes all the time of the teams. And uh, again, when you come with very strong uh, experience, you deal with those changes, you know how to adapt to those changes, to new technologies, new people, new processes, and you know that, yeah, you can work with that, you can, you can really succeed in a changing uh, environment. What about management skills, uh, project management skills? So this is the one-on-one -on -one when you come from, from a major corporation. For example, I came from a Westpac banking corporation. Uh, in my first role, I ran the uh, Sarbanes-Oxley the financial control framework for the Westpac group. And Westpac is, is a large group. And when you have uh, uh, six teams across the group, external auditors, uh, executives on your head all over the place and you have a very large annual program to manage, you have to have outstanding management skills and project management skills and you need to know what is important, what is less important and all the time to update the, ch the, the project plan based on the changes and there are changes all the time. So you need good project managers? Absolutely. You need good project managers with a lot of experience. And it's not only the experience of project management and reporting, but also the ability to work with other people, to communicate successfully with other people, to look for win-win and to find solutions, not problems. 
I'd imagine one of the big issues for a lot of the startups would be having showing they have the ability, demonstrating they have the ability with corporate clients. Absolutely. The one of the key things that uh, a corporate client is looking for is a proven ability. I mean, for them, the idea and the concept look and sound really, really good. But for them and for their risk management practices, they are looking for you, for your ability, for your proven capabilities to deliver. As the old saying in uh, corporate Australia, no one lost his job because they hired IBM. And IBM is a symbol of well-established company. So obviously, risk-wise, is not IBM, but the concept is, is the same, to try to bring the experience, the credibility to the table. So, and you, you do that through your team? Yeah, obviously, the founders and the team. When you come to a meeting with the, a corporation, you're saying, okay, this is the experience that the team bring to the table. Um, um, executive manager in, in Westpark, a senior manager in Zurich, head of IT in Macquarie, etc., etc. And then you see that uh, it is really uh, well received. I'd imagine uh, the, the key issue though, for a lot of the startups is actually having a very clear set of strategic objectives. Yeah, absolutely. Because one of the, the key things is to distinguish between the, the idea and the concept, let's call it, to do something really big, to have a really clear list of strategic objectives, and then to say, okay, this is what I need to deliver, this is by when, this is how, and this is the person who is accountable, and that accountable person, again, has the experience to deliver and to communicate with the entire leadership team about this strategic objective. That's quite a challenge, though, for every startup, isn't it? It is quite a challenge, and what is um, a bit funny in, in Australia as opposed to, let's say, Israel, is that uh, experienced people, actually, most of them don't have a good incentive to live the very comfortable corporate environment and to, to have a startup because the investors are looking for very strong uh, commitments for investors uh, who don't uh, take salary or receive very, very little salary. So uh, the actual situation that we have is kind of a paradox. They effectively discourage very competent people uh, from leaving the corporate environment. And by that, the majority of the, uh, of the startups are led by very young and inexperienced people who actually deliver uh, sometimes very poor results. Around 90% of the startups fail because of uh, lack of experience in many cases. So what startups need to do is to look at uh, the corporate sector to try to attract them. But how should they do that? So the first thing is uh, the investors, because the investors are key. If an investor is saying, yeah, um, I am seeking, uh, I, I am looking for very experienced uh, founders, I, uh, I do understand that these guys need to have a reasonable salary, I do need to understand that I need to provide sufficient seed funding for them to attract additional people who come from the corporate environment. I do understand that offices need to be located where people really want to come to work. And then all of it, and the tone come, comes actually from, from the investors because they bring the money uh, to the table. And then 
this is kind of a win-win situation. And I came from Israel, and you see that in many, many cases that you have a lot of experienced people who come from uh, uh, large corporations or major IT companies. They make a decision to live, and usually funding is not an issue. The investors truly understand that in order to get the best people, you need to invest a significant amount of funds and, and to, to support the company. And that is effectively a win-win situation. So what the startup needs to do is to look to its investors to provide the sweeteners for the people to come across from the corporate sector. Exactly. And this is not that easy because the key challenge that investors are saying or seeing is a, they see a major risk that the investor will go down. Okay, but by trying to uh, be too conservative with the risk and try to invest too little, then what actually happens is that they, it's hard for them to attract the right people and to have the right companies who will really deliver outstanding results. Which means that when you're setting up a startup, you're going to need the right kind of investors who are prepared to go down this direction. Absolutely. That's absolutely a must. Otherwise, it's by far harder to succeed, you will have um, more obstacles and more challenges in an already very challenging environment. Doran Pellig, thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much, Leon. And now let's talk to AMP Capital Chief Economist, Dr. Shane Oliver. Shane Oliver, the markets uh, seem to have uh, been doing well on Wall Street following a, a Powell statement that the, the uh, Fed will raise rates and the economy is doing well. Uh, uh, Europe's been taking a stand back and waiting, and the Australian market dipped yesterday. But uh, what's your take on it in view of the all the trade issues going on with the tariffs? Well, I, I guess the tariffs uh, are continuing as, an, as a big concern for investors. But I guess also investors also have to um, weigh that up against current economic information, which remains very positive. So, and that's the issue here, that this uh, tariff trade war threat has been around now since March. That was when uh, Donald Trump first came out big time and started uh, making these threats, um, starting with steel and aluminium, of course, and then ramping up since then. But for the most part, those tariffs are really yet to go into place. The steel and aluminium ones have. There's been retaliation, some initial tariffs in relation to China. But in the great scheme of things, it only adds up to around three, maybe three and a half percent of US total imports. The rest is really just a threat. And of course, we don't know whether it's going to happen or not. It may happen, but there's also a good chance that they'll go back to negotiating again and some sort of negotiated solution will be worked out. So consequently, the markets are left to focus on other things. And on that front, the news, the news particularly out of the US economy, has been pretty good. Growth looks to have uh, been quite strong through the June quarter. We're seeing, so far anyway, reasonably good uh, profit growth coming out of the US. And data globally has remained fairly uh, solid as well. Not as strong as it was maybe late last year, but still pretty solid. So that that's, explains why share markets mostly have been reasonably uh, robust despite those ongoing tariff concerns. And, of course, the profit figures coming out of the US have been very healthy. They have. So far, it's early days yet. We've only seen about 40 of the S&P 500 companies report so far, but the predominant tendency... Uh, something like 90% of, or 80, 90% of surprised on the upside. So um, 
that that's that's reasonably good. Uh, tech stocks, obviously, tech companies doing pretty well in this environment. Um, and the Nasdaq making a new all-time high, but gen- the general picture is still one of profit strength. And even though we're probably going through the strongest phase in terms of US profit growth at around 20-odd percent or more, um, and it might slow down from here, there's no indication that profits are about to go backwards. So investors you know, still remaining fairly, fairly optimistic about things generally. And of course, there's the issue of uh, Britain and Brexit. And do you see that playing into the share markets at all? Well, Britain and Brexit certainly will play into the UK share market, but I think ever since uh, uh, that date back in June uh, last, uh, back in 2016, it's really been a a UK-related phenomenon. Grants, lots of headlines, lots of uh, interesting debates, but at the end of the day, it is a UK phenomenon. Um, It's not going to impact the Australian share market or the US share market, and and in fact, will have very little impact on the European share markets. In fact, I'd, I'd argue that the uncertainty around Italy is more important to the European Union and the Eurozone in particular than uh, the UK in terms of what happens in terms of their share market. So obviously it's a, uh, a source of uncertainty. I think it's way too early to say that the, the British pound has bottomed yet. There seems to be a lack of consensus within the UK on any one particular model in terms of how to do Brexit, whether it's a soft Brexit or a hard Brexit, what to do with the Irish border and so on and so forth. And uh, there's still uh, this big issue as to whether uh, Theresa May will survive, whether there'll be an early election, what that will bring, and whether they'll have a Brexit at all. So this this will go on. But it's for Australian-based investors, it really is a UK-related issue. It affects the British share market, affects the British pound, but not much impact on the Australian share market. I see, I see. Now, uh, of course, the big worry was the IMF's warning the other day that uh, the uh, trade, the tariffs issues could actually affect global growth. Well, that's right. And the IMF, of course, is telling us what investors have, have worried about at various points in time over the last uh, the last, uh, the last few months regarding trade, that uh, if it goes too far, then it will significantly adversely affect global growth. Um, various organisations, economists and what have you have warned that this is a, a silly thing. Um, in fact, uh, Fed Chair Powell said the same last night, that most countries that go down a protectionist path end up worse off. That's the history of this. Anyone who cares to look at the history would uh, would realise that. But uh, we're in an upside-down world these days and some people aren't looking at that history um, and maybe they should. But uh, for now, um, that risk remains... Um, Obviously, uh, at this level, it's, it's it's sort of a low level, but if the tariffs continue to ramp up, then, yes, we would get more and more concerned. I do think, though, at some point, common sense will ultimately prevail. There'll be some sort of negotiated solution, um, but you know, those risks are still there, and that means investors really need to ke- tread a bit more carefully um, right now. And I, I'd say the two key risks there out there at the moment are the tariffs, um, so need to be cautious of that one. The other one, of course, is the... Uh, the Fed continuing to raise interest rates and the danger that at some point they end up going too far. Trouble is, we never know when that point is reached till we actually get there. So at this stage, I'd say we've still got further to go um, in terms of what the Fed does, because if you look at real interest rates in the US, they've only just got back to to zero. Um, Historically, they've gone well and truly into positive territory before you get a significant US economic downturn. Um, but so I think there is further to go in the US, more upside in terms of their share market, in terms of growth. Recession is still a, a fair way off in the US. But obviously, 
um, what the Fed does, what inflation in the US does, and of course uh, the trade issue is the, uh, are the big issues to keep an eye on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, as you say, the uh, the US interest rates are very low, but the worry is if the Fed just keeps going raising interest rates, what that will do for the market. Well, obviously, history tells us that the Fed will keep going until something breaks. That's what happened going into the early 90s recession. Uh, we've got the SNL crisis in the US, obviously the loan crisis. That's what happened going into the uh, the tech wreck. Um, obviously, NASDAQ broke, <laughs> tech stocks broke, and that's what happened going to the GFC. Housing broke in the US, and that gave us the GFC. Um, at this stage, though, I'd say we're a fair way from something breaking, though, because interest rates are way, way below levels that you've seen in the past that have caused a problem. Uh, now, you might argue, well, maybe interest rates don't need to go up as much as they did in the past because debt levels are higher and so on. Um, but by the same token, the 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 order of magnitude by which they're, they're low is much greater than normal. You're still looking at a US interest rate of 1.88%. You know, the, the range for the Fed funds rate is 1.75 to 2%. Now, when anyone's reckoning, that's a very low number, uh, particularly when inflation is only running around 2%. So I, I suspect there's still quite a bit more upside in US interest rates before we really need to worry about the US economy. That said, the Fed is aware of the issues. They have noted that the yield curve in the US is flattening. Historically, the US yield curves, that's the gap between long-term bond yields and short-term interest rates, has gone negative um, prior to each of the last US recessions. So that's something the Fed is cognizant of. Um, and they're also looking at a range of indicators there. So, And, of course, uh, we did hear Fed Chair Powell say, that uh, it's appropriate to continue raising interest rates gradually, but he also added in two words, and they were for now. He said for now it's appropriate to continue gradually raising interest rates, suggesting that he doesn't see a major problem at the moment in doing that, but obviously as we go into next year, they may revisit that and, and perhaps take a slower path or maybe even pause in raising interest rates. But I, I think when you look at the US economy, there's no broad-based sign that it's about to crack. In fact, what I see when I look at the US economy is a very strong economy, uh, very strong consumer spending, um, increasing signs that wages growth will pick up in time, although it hasn't yet, um, strong business investment, strong profits. All of those things tell me there's more risk that the US economy will, will continue to accelerate and overheat before it, uh, before it cracks and goes into recession. So therefore, yes, certainly worth keeping an eye on what the Fed's doing, but I think we're a long way from the danger zone at present. And, and certainly uh, we're heading into the profit season here in Australia next month. Uh, where do you see it tracking? Well, yeah, that one comes around fairly quick. It was only back in uh, February, seems like right. yesterday, that we were talking about this one. And here we are again. Uh, right. it, starts, it starts to ramp up in August. Um, and in fact, it's all finished by the end of August. So um, next month is the, is the big one for Australia. I suspect that we're going to see profit growth of around 6% or so. Six, seven percent, something of that order. Um, there was a little bit of a fear that it would it would fall for the resources companies or slow down a lot more. But that resources companies seem to be doing fairly well. The iron ore price is holding at levels which are higher than many had been assuming. It's currently around sixty three dollars a ton, so that's up above where many had expected. Um, and and other commodities generally have been okay, although it's been a bit messy there, but generally okay. So resources doing okay. And the broader economy is still growing. You know, you can quibble about whether it's as strong as it could be. There's a lot of unemployed resources out there. 
Um, we're not as strong as the US and so on, but we're still in an environment where uh, sales growth is in positive territory for companies. And with very low wages growth, they should be able to make, they should be able to grow their profits at a, at a sort of an okay rate. But you're looking at profit growth around 6%, maybe 7%, which is good. That'll support our market, um, but nowhere near as good as the 20-odd percent profit growth we're seeing in the US, of course. And uh, I noticed some analysts were talking about the worry of a trade war affecting the earnings of companies with global operations. But, uh, you know, I read those comments and I thought, yeah, but we're not there yet. And uh, it's still too early. And by the time those tariff, tariffs come into play, that could be years away. That's right. Before we see that impact, it could take some time to show up. So I doubt that we'll see much evidence of it here yet. You may see it in some of the company profits that CEOs will say, well, this would be a worry if it happened, but I don't think we're actually going to see it in the numbers yet. Um, and that's pretty much the story globally. People say, like the IMF, well, if that happens, it'll be a worry. Um, companies are saying, if that happens, it'll be a worry. But there's no clear evidence that it's having a big impact on actual hard economic data yet um, because it hasn't gone far enough. You know, the steel and aluminium tariffs, the retaliation response to that, um, don't forget, steel and aluminium imports in the US are about 1.5, maybe 2% at most of total US imports into the US. That's very, very small. And likewise, the the tariffs which have been put in place on China are about another 1.5% of US imports. So the actual imports tariffs that are in place at present are actually very, very small in relation to total trade. So it's it's really more of a concern about the future rather than the than the here and now. Well, Shane Oliver, it's always a delight talking to you. Thank you very much for your time. My pleasure, Leon. Great to talk to you. So what's happening in the news? Well, the International Monetary Fund has warned that trade battles and US tariffs could derail economic recovery and depress medium-term growth prospects. The global economy is set to grow at 3.9% this year and next, which could be its highest growth rate since 2011, according to the IMF's latest outlook. IMF Chief Economist Maury Opsfeld told a news conference that tariffs were the greatest near-term threat to global growth. The tariff threats and subsequent retaliation from trading partners, if realised, could cut annual global economic output by 0.5% from projections for 2020. Complicating the matter further was the likelihood of US trade deficits growing due to high demand, possibly inflaming trade tensions further. Other issues, with a politically uncertainty in Europe, and the UK's EU departure date getting closer. All this would result in nearly US $500 billion in lost annual output based on IMF projections, and that is the equivalent of subtracting an economy the size of Thailand. And President Donald Trump named the European Union as a foe of the US in an interview days after a contentious meeting with NATO allies. The comment using a common synonym for enemy or opponent to describe nations that for generations have been considered among the US's closest and most important allies, continued Trump's striking shift in posture towards European democracies. Over the past few days, Trump badgered NATO allies over their military spending levels. He attacked German Chancellor Angela Merkel over a pipeline deal with Russia. And he chastised British Prime Minister Theresa May for not pursuing a hard enough break with the EU in Brexit talks and for dismissing his advice. And Theresa May gave way in a new confrontation with hardline Brexiters on Monday, accepting four amendments intended to toughen up her negotiating stance with Brussels. 
the Prime Minister decided not to fight the changes to the Customs Bill as she attempted to reach the relative safety of the summer parliamentary recess without further antagonising the Eurosceptic rebels in her party. Her capitulation prompted an immediate backlash from pro-Europeans who say they will now intensify their efforts to push Mrs May into keeping Britain in a customs union. The open conflict in a party has led to rumours swirling around the end-of-term drinks parties of a vote of no confidence in the Prime Minister and of an early end to the parliamentary term. And to Australia. And high levels of household debt fuelled by record low interest rates and easy access to finance are particularly prominent in Australia's real estate market, according to the Reserve Bank. The Central Bank's board was briefed on the household debt bubble at its most recent meeting a fortnight ago, and, in detailed discussions, agreed that the debt exposure made households more vulnerable to economic shocks. In the minutes from the RBA board meeting on July the 3rd, members were told that the global growth in household debt levels had outweighed household income for the past three decades, a trend that was particularly notable in Australia. And Australian households must prepare for a mammoth overhaul of the nation's electricity grid as investment surges into renewable energy, sparking a new call to keep coal-fired power stations running for decades to help with the transition. The nation's energy market operator has warned that Australians are exposed more than ever to the risks and costs of a disruption as it sets out a series of major projects needed to improve the capacity and reliability of the electricity grid. With almost 80% of new energy projects using wind and solar generation, the peak regulator has outlined a sweeping investment plan including new transmission lines, battery storage and expanded hydroelectricity projects to cope with the change. The Australian Energy Market Operator forecasts a closure of coal power stations that currently serve about one-third of total electricity consumption across the national electricity market, while warning of a risk of catastrophic failure of some generators ahead of schedule. And Chief Executive Pay has hit record highs over the past year as wages growth for workers continues to flatline and trust in big business ebbs amid fallout from the Banking Royal Commission. The latest CEO pay report from the Australian Council of Superannuation Investors shows pay for company bosses is at its highest level in 17 years thanks to persistent and increasing bonus payments. The startling results come against the backdrop of the Banking Royal Commission which has revealed unlawful, unethical and possible criminal activity in some parts of the banking and insurance sectors. The survey says median realised pay for ASX 100 chief executives rose 12.4% to $4.36 million and rocketed by 22.1% to $1.76 million for the ASX 200 company bosses. Bonus payments rose more than 18%, with close to one in three ASX 100 chief executives awarded at least 80% of their maximum bonus. The top three ASX 200 earners in the 2017 financial year include Domino's Pizza Enterprises Chief Executive Dom Mage at $36.8 million, Peter and Stephen Lowy of Westfield at $25.9 million, and Macquarie Group Chief Executive Nicholas Moore at $25.2 million. And Rio Tinto expects to hit the top end of its iron ore export target in 2018 after its West Australian division reported the second strongest quarterly output in its history. The miner shipped 88.5 million tonnes during the three months to June 30, broadly in line with analyst estimates. 
Rio Tinto's vowed to ship between 330 and 340 million tonnes of iron ore from Western Australia in 2018, and it's on track to achieve that goal at the halfway mark, having shipped 168.8 million tonnes since January the 1st. And Amazon Australia has upped the ante on retailers by slashing prices of its flagship devices and branded products by as much as 70% during its first local Prime Day promotion. Amazon kicked off Prime Day deals at midday on Monday, undercutting domestic retailers including Woolworths, JB Hi-Fi, Maya, Kmart, Kogan.com, Catch.com.au and Baby Bunting by reducing prices on products including consumer electronics, kitchenware, baby goods, fashion footwear, beauty and toys. Now, Prime Day in Australia will be the big test of how Amazon is travelling in this country and seeks to establish it as a big retail outlet. The flagship membership program gives Australians access for the first time to sales via the local website, amazon.com.au. A Prime subscription costs Australians $59 a year or $6.99 a month. They also get free delivery on millions of local and international items. Amazon Prime Day features some big discounts like, for example, the Prime Day linked offer of four months of Amazon Music streaming at 99 cents. They can also get two months free access to Kindle Unlimited, offering one million titles for new customers who join Kindle Unlimited before July 31. Three months of free access to Audible for new customers who join Audible between July the 9th and 31st. Streaming of Prime Video. Discounts of up to 60% off on Amazon Fashion that include such brands as Calvin Klein, Tommy Hilfiger, Julius Marlowe, Fossil and Lorna Jane. Discounts on headphones from Sony and Bose and speakers from Sonos. And special deals on beauty brands such as Maybelline, Rimmel, L'Oreal, Paris, Max Factor and Garnier. And Whitehaven Coal has beaten full-year coal export targets despite port congestion crimping sales in the final months of fiscal 2018. The 22 million tonnes of coal sold by Whitehaven was higher than the 21 million tonnes that was suggested as the top end of the company's guidance range and higher than the 20.67 million tonnes sold last year. Whitehaven's share of export in fiscal 2018 was 17.3 million tonnes, a result that was 10% better than last year. Thermal coal prices have surged to six-year highs in recent months, with premium thermal coal from Newcastle fetching US $117.50 per tonne. And Westpac is set to rock the increasingly nervous property market by withdrawing new loan offers to self-managed superannuation funds looking to invest in property. The bank, the nation's second-largest mortgage lender, and its subsidiaries, Bank of Melbourne, St George Bank and Bank SA, will withdraw from lending to small super funds at the end of this month following a review of funds, prospects and its exposure. And publishing competitors, Fairfax and News Corp Australia, have struck an historic agreement that will see them use each other's printing networks. The deal will save the publishers' costs at a time when revenues and circulation is falling. Fairfax says it expects to save about $15 million a year, with the benefits set to flow toward the end of the first half of this financial year. The deal will see News Corp providing printing services for Fairfax in New South Wales and Queensland. For its part, Fairfax will print publications for News Corp out of its North Richmond plant in New South Wales. Fairfax will also transition work from its print centres in Beresfield, New South Wales and Ormiston in Queensland. Once complete, those sites will close. And finally, Adani claims it's stitched up funding for its massive coal mine in central Queensland. 
Delayed by years of legal and environmental issues, the $16.5 billion project's final hurdle is $1.35 billion in funding needed for the rail line, and that appears to be close. The revelations came from Karan Adani, the son of the company's owner, Gautam Adani, and chief executive of the ports business. He told Indian TV that it was now closing the financing of the rail project. And that's it for this week. And next week we've got a terrific interview with the founder and CEO of Chuvi, Sonia Stephen. Now, Chuvi is a new service that offers dynamic ticket pricing by combining real-time data, data capture and consumer analysis along with automated Netflix-style notifications, and it promises you cheaper movie tickets. In the meantime, you can keep up with me on Twitter at TalkingBizBowDoubleZ or on Facebook. Looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.